Hey everybody, I'm back. It is Tuesday night, and I think I'm probably going to finish this book tonight, uh, which is really exciting. Um, I did not think I'd be finishing it so quick, but um, I'm glad I am. Um, there's a lot of other directions I'd like to take the podcast, and I'm glad I read this whole book. Um, I think if you have followed the whole thing, I think hopefully it explains where I'm coming from more and I don't seem like I'm just crazy. Um, I don't, I don't know why I'm so worried about that, but I don't know. I just don't want to, I do have good reasons for believing and going in the directions I have taken this thing. Um, but anyways, um, I'm going to get to it and, uh, thank you for listening. All right. Next chapter is called Consciousness. Work on the level of story is not the only the key to creating a more beautiful world. It is also identical with what has always been called spiritual practice. Of course it is. At the bottom of our story of the world is the story of self, with its delusions of separation from other people, from nature, from Gaia, and anything we might call God. In sacred economics, I question the notion that we ought to pursue some unitary spiritual goal called enlightenment. Indeed, such a thing as one thing, as one thing even exists. Uh, Let me read that sentence again. In sacred economics, I question the notion that we ought to pursue some unitary spiritual goal called enlightenment. Indeed, that such a thing as one thing even exists. A parallel is too close to money the one thing from which all their blessings supposedly rise, arise. In a society where, it is advertised, money can meet every need, money becomes not just a universal means, but a universal end as well. Of course, when one achieves financial wealth, one realizes that it cannot, in fact, meet every need. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> All right, let's try that again. Of course, when one achieves financial wealth, one realizes that it cannot, in fact, meet every need. Not, for example, the need for intimacy, connection, love, or meaning. Whether or not we are financially rich, we all know this. But then, rather than question the notion that achieving one thing will lead to all other things, we merely displace that one thing away from money and onto something else. Beholden to the dogma of separation and of spirit and matter, we take this other thing to be, unlike money, something spiritual. Some call it God. Some call it enlightenment. But we have not left the money patterning of pursuing a unitary goal. The most important thing there is, to which one must render endless sacrifice. None of this is to say there is no such thing as enlightenment or God. Perhaps it is, rather, that all things we leave out when we create the category God are actually part of God as well. And perhaps our pursuit of enlightenment as a goal, as a goal necessarily neglects the very things that are actually necessary for our enlightenment. Here again we see the peril of getting lost in story.
Rather than ascending a linear evolutionary axis of consciousness toward a destination called enlightenment, as most New Age metaphysics seems to teach, perhaps what is happening is more subtle. It is not for nothing that the idea of an it is not for nothing that the idea of an evolution of consciousness is so compelling. From crude schemata like transitioning from the third to the fifth dimension, to sophisticated psychosocial carto cartographies like spiral dynamics, various maps of the evolution of consciousness illuminate a real phenomenon. We are evolving. It isn't a linear evolution. It is. It just isn't a linear evolution. We are entering a vast new territory, each one of us exploring a different part of it. While, while I'm at it, I'd like to question whether consciousness is a unitary phenomenon, something we can essentialize without distortion. I think when we try, we enter dangerous territory, the territory of some people are more conscious than others. The toxic consequences of that kind of elitism are all too plain. Or if all people are equally conscious, then it becomes, humans have it, but animals don't and soon we are justifying factory-style animal barns. Or, if animals have it too, then it becomes animals with the central nervous system have it, and plants don't, and soon we are justifying monocrop farming and the treatment of trees as things. There was a footnote there that I wanted to read. <clears throat> Uh, footnote part one, which was for the spiral dynamics. He saw, said sophisticated psychosocial categories like spiral dynamics. One, for those in the in integral community, there is something to chew on. The utility of spiral dynamics map is nearing a limit because it is itself an expression of yellow consciousness. It is therefore ill-fitted to illuminate much about the levels beyond yellow. At best, it can translate and reduce them to the conceptual apparatus of yellow consciousness. That has not been a problem until recently, because nothing past yellow had really crystallized yet. Hmm. I have no idea what he's talking about, um, but I could look into it. Uh, let's see. And soon we are justifying monocrop farming and treatment of, of trees as things. Or if plants have it too, what about the water and mountains? Enough of what? What if consciousness is one name we give to many things? What if, like God or enlightenment or naming of it, always leaves part of it out? The very part we must most need to see. As Lao Tzu said, a name that can be named is not a true name. While ancient humans have lived, much in a, lived in a much stronger realization of interbeing than we know today, Nonetheless, we may say that humanity is stepping into new territory, propelled by the crisis of the old. Each of us is conscious in some ways, blind in others. When we think someone doesn't get it, perhaps we are only seeing their deficiencies and missing our own. Surely others can look at us and cluck that we don't get it either. The person who doesn't get it, that's you. As Wayne Dyer says, if you spot it, you've got it. How could it be otherwise in a world of interbeing, where each is in all, and all is in each? It is not as if the world contains two types of people, those who get it and those who don't, those who are conscious, awakened, or evolved, and those who are not, those who are entering the fifth dimension and those who are stuck in the third, those who are among God's elect and those who are fated to burn in hell. How often have you felt like an alien in a world of people who don't get it and don't care? The irony is that nearly everyone feels that way, 
deep down. When we are young, the feeling of mission and the sense of magnificent origins and the magnificent destination is strong. Any career or way of life lived in a betrayal of that knowing is painful and can be maintained only through an inner struggle that shuts down a part of one's being. For a time, we can keep ourselves functioning through various kinds of addictions or trivial pleasures to consume the life force and dull the pain. In earlier times, we might have kept the sense of mission and destiny buried for a lifetime and called that condition maturity. No longer. The story of the world kept it buried is dying. That kept The story of the world that kept it buried is dying. The institutions that conspired to keep us addicted are crumbling, each in his or her own way. Through a different permutation of crisis and miracle, expulsion and invitation, we are starting to get it. I have written as if the transition from the old story to the new were a singular, all-or-nothing event, but the reality is more complicated. One can live some aspects of the old and some aspects of the new simultaneously, and in each of these aspects experience the same dynamics of crisis, collapse, the space between, and birth into the new. A newborn is fragile and dependent, able to remain in the world only with the nurturing of those already established in it. So it is when we are born in a new, into a new dimension of the story of interbeing. To stay there, we need, to help, we need help from the people who already inhabit it and have mastered its ways. Enlightenment is a group project. Today, the breakout of consciousness into the story of interbeing is happening for the first time on such mass levels as to obviate old teachings about spiritual practice, gurus, and masters. The age of the guru is over, not because we don't need help from the outside in order to inhabit a new story, but because the transition is happening to so many people in so many ways, no one person can, on his or her own, serve the traditional function of a guru. Those who tried to serve this role in the late 20th century, if they didn't have the good grace to pass away, or the good sense to retire from guruing, generally came into came to ignominious ends, embroiled in scandals of money, sex, and power. This wasn't because they were charlatans. Most, I believe, were people of profound insight, mystical experience, and deep practice. But the water table of consciousness had risen to such a point that it came gushing from many new springs, and none were able to hold the energy. To be sure, there remain many teachers today with wisdom and integrity, both within and without traditional lineages, who have much to offer. I have met quite a few of them, people far wiser than myself, but each, it seemed, needed teachers of his or her own, and many of the ones I admire and most readily acknowledge that. No, but many of the ones I admire most readily acknowledge that. So it is not that we can rely solely on the inner guru, as some New Age teachings would have us think. It is that the guru, unable to incarnate in something as small as a single person, takes the form of a group. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, the next Buddha will be a Sangha. As Matthew Fox says, the second coming of Christ will be the advent of Christ's consciousness in everyone. Perhaps it might be said that the millennia-long work of the saints, sages, mystics, and gurus is nearing, is nearing completion. They have nearly rendered themselves obsolete. Destiny. There are no facts. There are only stories. White men. Nigerian shaman. Quoted by Adobe Okomalafe. Oh, I think that's... I think that's the guy who wrote this other book I'm going to read. 
not necessarily here on this podcast, but um, I think it, the book is called um, The Wilds Beyond Our Fences. Um, anyways, that's not related. Um, destiny. I speak of the more beautiful world our hearts tell us is possible because our minds, steeped in the logic of separation, so often tell us it is not. Even as we begin to accept a new logic of interbeing, still the old doubt lingers on. That is because intellectual beliefs are just an outcropping of a whole state of being. This book has explored various facets of the state of being, the habits associated with it, the wounds bound up in it, the stories that reinforce it, and the social institutions that reflect and sustain those stories. Change on all these levels is necessary in order for any one of us, and therefore all of us, to inhabit a more beautiful world. Because this world is not possible from within the story of separation, it will take a miracle, by the definition of the chapter, miracle, to get there. In other words, we can get there only through the methods, actions, and causal principles of a new story, a new understanding of self, life, and world. By the same token, the despair that says, we can't make it, illuminates the deficiency of the methods, actions, and causal principles we equate with the practical and the possible. The question, will we make it, itself encodes a profound disempowerment. The question implies that there is a fact of the matter independent of one's own agency. The fear behind the question is, whatever I do, it won't matter, because the world is doomed anyways. And the assumption behind the fear is that I am separate from the universe. That is part of our story. The assumption, the fear, and the question go away as we transition to a story of interbeing. In it, we know that we that any change in ourselves will coincide with a change in other people in the world, because our consciousness is not separate from theirs. To deny what I do doesn't much matter is so audacious as to seem delusionary. It says, whether we make it or not is up to me, personally. I do not mean that in the egoic sense of, it is up to me and not to you. I mean that it is up to me and is it is up to you, and you, and you. To everybody. It is utterly different, opposite in fact, from the disempowering truism of separation that says we won't make it unless everyone changes, and that therefore what you or I do hardly matters. What I am saying is that it is indeed all up to you, regardless of what I do, and it is all up to me, regardless of what you do. The mind of separation coils at that paradox, but the mind of interbeing understands that in a world in which you have done what is up to you to do, and I will have done what is up to me to do, by your actions, you choose which story and which world you are part of. Far be it from me to attempt any intersubjective metaphysics. Let's just say that the paradox is only a paradox in the context of separate beings in an objective universe. True, that is also the context for the scientific method, as well as for most scientific paradigms and currently accepted technologies. Since the latter determine what we perceive as possible, when we accept the worldview, the answer to, will we make it, is bound to be negative. There are just no realistic solutions to many of our problems. The time for conventionally accepted solutions probably came and went in the 1960s. I'll share with you a bit of intuition I had recently, a picture that aroused a whole cloth instantaneously in my mind when someone asked me why I don't think we will repeat the disappointment of the 60s. Yes, I said. Oh, wait a second. I'm going to reread that sentence. I'll share with you a bit of intuition I had recently, a picture that arose of whole cloth 
instantaneously in my mind when someone asked me why I don't think we will repeat the disappointment of the 60s. Yes, I said, that was indeed our first chance, and we missed it. We could have made a very smooth transition then, with a world population of only 3 billion, and the majority of the rainforest still intact, the coral reefs still vibrant, CO2 levels still remediable, and so on. Forward-looking scientists got it about ecology, and visionaries of all sorts were developing all the simple technologies necessary for 3 billion people to live in harmony with Earth, but it was not to be. Now we have a second chance, and this time the transition cannot be so smooth. Too much wealth has been destroyed, too many people traumatized, for there to be any hope of, any easy, of an easy transition. In fact, those who understand most deeply the severity of the multiple crises converging upon us hold little cause for hope at all. Many speak of hospicing a dying civilization. This book argues that their despair arises from the same source as the crisis themselves, crises themselves, and that as we transition into a new story of the world, things become possible that seemed miraculous before. Even with these extraordinary social and material technologies, the transition will be bumpy, but at least we can avoid the billions of casualties that some doomsayers predict. Perhaps we will miss the chance, this chance as well. Perhaps we will miss this chance as well. If mythology is any guide, we will still have a third chance. Maybe it will be around the year 2050. That is when the damage to the ecosphere will hit home with truly calamitous consequences, inevitable without a near miraculous change, of course, right now. At that point, the cumulative damage to ecology, health, polity, and psyche will be so great that even given a hugely expanded realm of the possible, only a remnant of humanity will survive. Desertif desertification, genetic pollution, infertility, toxic radioactive pollution will stretch to the very limit of the planet's capacity to heal. And it is possible we will even miss the third chance. Some beings don't make it through adolescence. Um, hold on a second. Millenarians and utopians alike have been saying for thousands of years that their generation will, is living through special times. What makes me any different? What makes our time so more special than any other? Could the story of civilization... Could the story of civilization... Could the story civilization has lived in for thousands of years continue for a few more thousand? I think not, for one basic reason, ecology. The narrative of civilization has held us as separate beings from ecology <clears throat> and exempt from its constraints on growth. I needn't belabor the point that such growth is unsustainable, unstable, unsustainable. We are reaching a coincidence of various resource peaks and ecosystem peaks that add up to peak civilization. If we are willing to ravage every last bit of natural wealth, we might sustain consumption growth and po population growth for another 40 years, but no more. We can say then with confidence that we are living in special times. Mm. That's very hard to hear, but not surprising. Uh, just really sad. And really scary. Um, all right, here we go.
Hopefully this is, yeah, it looks like it's recording all right. Okay. I spoke on the phone yesterday with Vicki Robin, the author of Your Money or Your Life. I am in danger of becoming a crotchety old lady, she confessed. People get in touch with me all the time for inspiration and support, sometimes simply wanting my presence. Just recently, it was at an eco-village in Brazil, and this crotchety old woman part of me was thinking, eco-village? We've tried that already. It isn't going to work, and I don't want to play that role. Vicky certainly isn't alone. In my travels and correspondence, I meet a lot of disillusioned old hippies. They, they come to my talks with such pain and weariness sometimes, not daring to rekindle the hopes of their youth for a more beautiful world. They recoil at any talk of transformed society or a shift of consciousness, for it t touches the wound of betrayal. In their communes, their lovins, their ashrams, they caught a glimpse of an astonishingly beautiful possibility. We say they became disillusioned, presuming that what they saw was not real, but at the same time it clearly was real, not as a hallucination, but a view of the future. It was just so obvious that the age of Aquarius was dawning, and that war, crime, poverty, jealousy, money, school, prisons, racism, ecocide, and all of our other shadows would soon melt away before the radiance of expanded consciousness. What happened then was not disillusionment, which would be to discover that what they saw wasn't real. What happened was that these harbingers of the future crumbled under the onslaught of the forces of the past, whether institutional or psychological. Not only did the powers of our society conspire to crush the hippie experiment, but the hippies themselves carried the image of those powers, an internalized oppression that had to play itself out. Even if they were aware of the need for mutual healing, their fledgling structures were too weak to hold it. Another way to see it is that in the 1960s, the age of separation had not yet reached its culmination. There were still further extremes of alienation, separation, fragmentation for humanity to explore. The 60s were like an addict's memory of clarity on the way down. Only when the world falls apart do we hit our collective bottom and begin living the way that was shown to us. If any of my readers are part of the hippie generation that I so love, please let me remind you of what you know. What you saw and experienced was real. It was no fantasy. It was nothing less than a glimpse of the future. Your valiant, doomed attempt to live it was not in vain because it helped to summon the str and strengthen the morphogenic field of the, that future possibility. Put more prosaically, it initi initiated a cultural learning process that a new generation is beginning to fulfill. How do I know that what you experienced was real? Again and again, I see the embers of that experience smoldering in the eyes of even the most cynical ex-hippie, and now the moment is coming to rekindle it into flame. What I shared with Vicky was that the new generation of idealists has tremendous advantage over the hippies. The reason they will succeed where your generation failed is, put simply, you. The original counterculture pioneers didn't have elders who had preceded them into this new world. They had no one from whose mistakes they could learn, and no one to hold them in the new story when the old patterning erupted. Of course, there were scattered exemptions exceptions. But in general, the hippies understood that the generations preceding them were beholden to a different world. Don't trust anyone over 30, they warned. A friend told me today, in organizing this event, we keep meeting 20-somethings who carry 
a wisdom and generosity that just blows me away. They have a kind of intelligence that I couldn't have touched when I was 25. Everywhere I go, I find the same thing. Young people who are seemingly born into the understandings it took my generation decades of hard struggle to achieve. And they inhabit these understandings so much more fully. A journey that took us decades takes them months. The patterning of the old world has very superficial hold on them. Sometimes they don't need to go through the same process of unraveling and breakdown to leave it behind. All that is needed is initiation and attunement, and they shift fully into the new. We older generations hold the space for them to step into, but once there, they go further than we ever could. The generation coming of age today can actually create the world that previous generations only glimpsed. They will do that because they have shoulders to stand on. The hippie generation, and to some extent the rebel elements of the ensuing X and Y generations, will stand guard around the new creators, helping them hold the story of a more beautiful world so that it does not repeat the story of the 60s. The foregoing account is, admittedly, quite America-centric. As far as I am aware, what America and Western Europe were going through in the 60s had no parallel in India, China, Latin America, or Africa. Moreover, indigenous people have always lived many of the ideals the hippies tried to reenact. However, it is Western civilization that is now taking over the world. Its science, technology, medicine, agriculture, political forms, and economics pushing all alternatives to the margins. As people around the world react to that civilization and strive to build alternatives, they can still benefit from their predecessors where civilization first reached its climax. Do not imagine, though, that it will be the West that rescues humanity from the very civilization it has perpetrated. Haplessly floundering within the invisible habits of separation, we cannot undo a civilization based on separation. Our healing will come from the margins. Every time I travel outside the developed world, I realize this anew. When I was in Colombia, I thought, here are people who haven't forgotten so much how to be human. They are spontaneous. They hug. They sing, they dance, and they take their time. On a visit to the United States, the Congolese activist Grace Namadamu agreed that, many, that my society was no less troubled than her own. True, we don't have militias running around raping women and massacring pygmies, but people here don't even know how to raise their own children, she told me. She is flabbergasted at the lack of respect and the obesity, the impersonality, and the lack of community. Our healing will come from the margins. How could it be otherwise, as the center falls apart? It will come from the people and places that were excluded from full participation in the old story of the people, and that thus preserved some piece of the knowledge of how to live as interbeings. It will come from the ideas and technologies that were marginalized because they contradicted dominant paradigms. These include technologies of agriculture, healing, energy, mind, ecological restoration, and toxic waste remediation. It will also draw from marginalized or near-forgotten social and political technologies, consensus-based decision-making, non-hierarchical organization, direct democracy, restorative justice, and non-violent communication, non communication, to name a few. It will engage the kinds of skills that our present system or fails, suppresses or fails to encourage. People who have languished outside our dominant economic institutions, working for very little, doing what they love, 
will find their skills and experience highly valued as prisoner pioneers of a new story. It will liberate the marginalized parts of people who have been suppressing their true gifts and passions in order to make a living or to be normal. To some extent, this category probably includes every member of modern society. We can feel the stirring of these suppressed gifts anytime we think, I wasn't put here on earth to be doing this. Hmm. Amen to that. It will embody and validate marginalized parts of life, the things we neglect in the rush and press of modernity, qualities of spontaneity, patience, slowness, sensuality, and play. Beware of any revolution that doesn't embody these qualities. It may be no revolution at all. Do you want a glimpse of that future? You can find in it, it in what has been rejected, cast into the waste pile, and flourish there, in the domain of alternative, the holistic, and the countercultural. Things that were cast aside and did not flourish and develop, say foot-binding or chattel slavery, are not in this category. These will become the new normal. Some people are living there already, but most of us are still caught between two worlds, living part in the old and part in the new. All right, um, that was the end of that chapter. So now I'm on the last chapter of this book. called Initiation. Um, this book ends with a story, and um, it's actually, I found this from, I think I've recorded a podcast on it already, but um, a guy in our Discord, um, someone in our Discord posted um, this podcast with Aubrey Marcus and Charles Eisenstein, and at the end of the podcast, Charles Eisenstein reads the story at the end of this book, and it's really good, and hmm, I don't know, I was thinking about maybe not reading it and just linking to that story. I'll go ahead and read it just because this book means a lot to me, but it is kind of a sacred story, um, so... Yeah, I don't know. It's a very special story at the end of this book. I'm going to go ahead and read it just because I've read this, this book and just because this book means a lot to me. Um, but I will link also that Aubrey Marcus podcast and uh, where Charles Eisenstein reads it too. Um, but yeah, thanks for being here with me and here we go. Initiation. A man sets out to draw the world. As the years go by, he peoples a space within images with images of province. Excuse me, man. I, okay, this isn't an as an excuse, but I have a pop filter in front of my face, and it like obscures the words. I'm looking at the book through the pop filter, which is like this mesh screen, and so that's why one reason I can't read this. I'm going to try to position this book so I can see it better. All right. A man sets out to draw the world. As the years go by, he peoples a space with images of provinces, kingdoms, mountains, bays, ships, islands, fishes, rooms, instruments, stars, horses, and individuals. A short time before he dies, 
he discovers that the patient labyrinth of lines traces the lineaments of his own face. Hmm. Jorge Luis Borges. But will we make it? If, as in so many other questions, evidence and reason alone are insufficient to determine a belief, then how will we answer that question, especially when the answer implicates everything else, even our basic stories of self and world? I offered an answer earlier. To choose the story you will stand in. How to choose? You will. What will you believe, given how easily reason, logic, and evidence are conscripted to the service of story? Here is an alternative. Choose a story that best embodies who you really are, who you wish to be, and who you are in fact becoming. Behind the fog of helplessness of the question, will we make it, is a gateway to our power to choose and to create, because written on its threshold is another question, the real question, who am I? The despair is only as valid as the story beneath it that generates what we believe possible. The story beneath it is the story of self. So who are you? Are you a discrete and separate individual in a world of the other? Or are you the totality of all relationships converging at a particular locus of attention? Get over the fantasy that you can answer this question by finding proof. Read one more book on PSI phenomena or past life regression and won't satisfy, won't, won't satisfy your inner skeptic. No amount of evidence will be enough. You are just going to have to choose, without proof. Who are you? The mystics have been offering us an answer for thousands of years. Two answers. On the one hand, strip away everything that connects you to the world, your money, your relationships, your arms and legs, your language, and still something that is you is left. I am not this. I am not that. Something minus everything is nothing. Hence the first answer, you are nothing. But when we go there, we find that nothing is not nothing. It is everything. All things spring from the void, and the speck of quantum vacuum has the energy of a billion suns. And so the second answer, you are everything. Take away even the tiniest relationship, and you are diminished as well. Add one, and you are increased. Change any being in this cosmos, and you are altered as well. You are, therefore, everything, a web of relationship, each containing all. That is the self of interbeing, divested of situation. Your attention is my attention, is everyone's attention. We are the same being looking at the world through different eyes. And these eyes, these vantage points, are each unique. As the comedian Swami Biondadana puts it, you are an, a totally unique being, just like everybody else. I won't say more about the nature of being. The more I say, the less true it becomes. Besides, who I am, who am I to know what you are? So let's just say that the separate self we have lived with, in various guises, for the last few centuries is one of the many possible stories of self. Who are you? It is not an objective question. Which story and which self is the real you? It isn't only that no accumulation of evidence will answer for it. It is that there is no objective fact of the matter. There is, however, what is true. Can you sense that the truth of who you are is changing? Do you know that less and less are you the self of separation? The separate self who is afraid to give, afraid to serve, 
a victim of impersonal forces, a helpless to and helpless to affect the hostile world out there, very much is the same self who wants proof that it is not that self. I cannot prove it to you. I cannot prove that the story of interbeing is true, just as neither side can prove that the other that is right in politics or often even in science. Reliance on certain proof is part of the old story, part of which story we'll call objectivity. You are going to have to choose, and you can no longer take refuge from that choice and proof. This goes for every question you face. Which belief is true? All the more this is for the question, who am I? Do I still hear the cynic, the betrayed one, saying, what happens if I choose to be the self of interbeing and therefore to live in a world story in which healing is possible, but I am just deluding myself? That question, you might recognize, carries the same energy as, will we make it? It is the plaintive cry of the separate self. What if I am alone? What if I give and serve, but no one in this hostile world gives back to me and takes care of me? The conclusion, I better play it safe. I better look out for my own interests and maximize my own security. Add up billions of people all thinking the same thing and acting from it. And you can see that it is from our collective immersion in that story that we have created its image and its confirmation in the world around us. We have created the evidence that we then insert into the foundation of our story as its justification. Choose to live in a new story and you'll experience a similar self-confirming positive feedback loop. Yes, you will. You will have migrated into a different world with different laws. I get letters all the time saying things like, I gave away all my money and I can hardly believe the magic that has unfolded in my life. Sometimes New Age teachers, being aware of such stories or having experienced themselves the results of liberation from scarcity programming, advocate that people change their beliefs around money. Easier said than done, when those beliefs are part of a much larger mosaic, an integral pattern at whose center lies who I am. Only when that is changing can associated beliefs change with it, resolving into a new and more beautiful pattern. But if who I am hasn't changed, it will drag other beliefs back into alignment with itself, with separation, no matter how hard you try to avoid, quote, negativity. Negativity is built into our most basic mythology of self and world. Ultimately, unless one has stopped, stepped at least partway into the story of interbeing, it will not only be impossible to change isolated derivative beliefs, it will also be impossible to create anything but the image of separation in the world. Nothing you do will really be of service. Even if you fight against self-interest in order to, quote, be a good person, you are still serving the end of appearing to oneself and others as a good person and not actually serving other people in the world. So stop trying to be a good person. Instead, just choose who you are. What you create from that will be far greater service. What you create from that will be of far greater service than anything you achieve out of covert vanity. Besides, our semi-conscious concept of being good is hopelessly entangled with mechanisms of social conformity and bourgeoisie morality that serve up to perpetuate the status quo. It restrains us from taking the bold actions that disrupt the old story. In this regard, we might even have something to learn from the psychopaths. 
Another reason we could say that all the effective action toward a more beautiful world comes from who am I is that the question implies another, who are you? In other words, we see others through the same lens as we see ourselves. Seeing others as interbeings who desire deeply to give and be of service, we will engage them accordingly, holding the space for them to see themselves that way too. If, on the other hand, we see them as selfish and separate, we will engage them accordingly, applying the tactics of force and pushing them toward a story in which they are alone in a hostile universe. Earlier, I described how activist tactics that are based on leveraging an opponent's fear of public opinion and desire for profit in effect say to that opponent, I know you. You are selfish and corrupt. You don't want to do the right thing, so we are going to have to force you. To believe that about someone, we must believe it about ourselves too, even if we tell ourselves that unlike them, we have overcome that in ourselves. Moreover, by believing that about someone, we hold that story open for them, inviting them to fulfill that role. When they do, we feel vindicated in our tactics and our way of seeing them. But when we stand back in the new story, that same dynamic brings the opposite results. We look at everyone around us, including those we would have seen as opponents and all the people we judged, and we now telegraph to them, I know you. You are a magnificent divine being who thirsts to express that divinity in service. You, like me, want to apply your gifts toward the creation of a more beautiful world. Most of us cannot stand alone in the new story. To do so would contradict the basic principle of interbeing. If you are a part of me, then if you are in separation, so also is a part of me. Lord knows there are a lot of social and economic forces holding us in the old story. A miracle or a breakdown can catapult us temporarily out of the world of separation, but to stay there, most of us need help. This is something we can all offer each other. That is why I say enlightenment is a group effort. The road to reunion has many twists and turns. Sometimes a hairpin turn makes it look like each step takes us farther away from the destination. These turnarounds, even the dead ends and backtracks, are all part of the path through the new territory of interbeing. It is unfamiliar to us, that territory. There are few maps, and we have not yet learned to see the trail. We are following an invisible path, learning from each other how to follow it. As we do that, and as we learn to see its subtle markings, the path becomes visible. Absent a map, and in the very early stages of a new story, we can only follow our intuition at each choice point, guided by our heart compass, not knowing how our turnings will add up to the destination. Frequently, our habits of separation lead us to stray, stray into the old, worn paths that we can see. We have to develop new vision to see the faint traces of ancient footsteps that lead out of the maze. We have to see the terrain itself, the truth behind the stories. As we walk, the destination bobs in and out of view, ascending a hill, there it is. Somehow my wanderings have taken me closer, descending into a veil, feeling lost, searching for the right direction. I came to doubt that the destination I saw really exist. At those moments, I meet another traveler. Yes, he says, I have seen it too. We share what we learned about how to walk the invisible path. As more of us enter this territory, these meetings happen more frequently and together we find our way toward the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible.
<clears throat> One common pattern on this path is that a first venture into new territory can be smooth for a while, but soon life provides an experience that says, are you sure? Are you sure this is where you want to live and who you want to be? For example, you leave a job that provided financial security, trusting that you'll be okay following your heart, but no miracle job opens up, your savings dwindles, and the lurking fear that were that we're hiding and the lurking fears that we're hiding behind the that assurance it will work out somehow came to the fore who are you really if everything had gone smoothly you would not have had to face that question full in the face sometimes a choice has to be stark and clarify who we really are though what if fears comes to pa- comes to pass or look convincingly as if they will a woman said to me i'm afraid that if i start standing up for what i want then my husband will leave me Eventually, she did just that, and her husband did leave her. Stop living the way you have lived, and maybe the worst will come to pass. At least it will threaten to. Then you will understand whether you are willing to make a real choice, or the conditional choice predicated on the hope it will all work out, and ready to be reversed as soon as it looks like it won't. When one goes through a series of initiations like this into the new story, he or she becomes strong in it. Being strong in it one can hold that story open for other people. Even if someone cannot, in a moment of crisis or when facing her own initiation, believe in the story of interbeing, a strong, initiated person can believe in it it for her, holding that possibility open until she is ready to step into it. With each initiation, we become stronger carriers, and our words and actions become part of that story's telling. I hope this book has served to strengthen you as a teller, a carrier, and a servant of the, of the new story of the people. I will end with a story of my own. <coughs> okay, this is the part where this is Charles Eisenstein's story. Um, He has said before that this is kind of a sacred story. This is a sacred story. Um, a medicinal story, I think he's called it. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to read it and then I'm going to play a song afterwards and I think that'll be the end of this episode. But uh, thanks for listening and uh, yeah, I look forward to discussing this book with you all too. A Gathering of the Tribe Once upon a time, a great tribe of people lived in a world far away from ours. Whether far away in space, or in time, or even outside of time, we do not know. They lived in a state of enchantment and joy that few of us today dare to believe could exist, except in those exceptional peak experiences when we glimpse the true potential of life and mind. One day, the elders of the tribe called a meeting. They gathered around, and one of them spoke very solemnly. My friends, she said, there is a world that needs our help. It is called Earth, and its fate hangs in the balance. Its humans have reached a critical point in their collective birthing, 
the same point our own planet was at one million years ago, and they will be, be stillborn without our help. Who would like to volunteer for a mission to this time and place and render service to humanity? Tell us more about this mission, they asked. It is no small thing. Our shaman will put you into a deep, deep trance, so complete that you will forget who you are. You will live a human life, and in the beginning you will completely forget your origins. You will forget even our language and your own true name. You will be separated from the wonder and beauty of our world, and from the love that bathes us all. You will miss it deeply, yet you will be unable to name what you are missing. You will remember the love and beauty that we know to be normal only as a longing in your heart. Your memory will take the form of an intuitive knowledge as you plunge into the painfully marred earth that a more beautiful world is possible. As you grow up in that world, your knowledge will be under constant assault. You will be told in a million ways that a world of destruction, violence, drudgery, anxiety, and degradation is normal. You may go through a time when you are completely alone, with no allies to affirm your knowledge of a more beautiful world. You may plunge into a depth of despair that we in our world of light cannot imagine. But no matter what, a spark of knowledge will never leave you. A memory of your true origin will be encoded in your DNA. That spark will lie within you, inextinguishable, until one day it is awakened. You see, even though you will feel, for a time, utterly alone, you will not be alone. We will send you assistance, help that you will experience as miraculous, experiences that will, you will describe as transcendent. These will fan that spark into flame. For a few moments or hours or days, you will reawaken to the beauty that, and the joy that is meant to be. You will see it on earth, for even though the planet and its people are deeply wounded, there is beauty there still, projected from past and future onto the present as a promise of what is possible and a reminder of what is real. After that glimpse, the flame may die down into an ember, again as the routines of normal life there swallow you up. But after each awakening, they will seem less normal, and the story of that world will seem less real. The ember will glow brighter. When enough embers do that, they will all burst into flame together and sustain each other. Because remember, you will not be there alone. As you begin to awaken to your mission, you will meet others of our tribe. You will recognize them by your common purpose, values, and intuitions, and by the similarity of the paths you have walked. As the condition of the planet Earth reaches crisis proportions, your paths will cross more and more. The time of loneliness, the time of thinking you might be crazy, will be over. You will find the people of your tribe all over the Earth and become aware of them through the long-distance communication technologies used on that planet. But the real shift, the real quickening, will happen in face-to-face -face gatherings in special places. When many of you gather together, you will launch a new stage on your journey. A journey that, I assure you, will end where it begins right now. Then the mission that lay unconscious within you will flower into consciousness. Your intuitive rebellion against the world presented to you as normal will become an explicit quest to create a more beautiful one. A woman said, Tell us more about the time of loneliness, that we might prepare for it. The elder said, 
In the time of loneliness, you will always be seeking to reassure yourself that you are not crazy. You will do that by telling people all about what is wrong with the world, and you will feel a sense of betrayal when they don't listen to you. You might hunger for stories of wrongness, atrocity, and ecological destruction, all of which confirm the validity of your intuition that a more beautiful world exists. But after you have fully received this help, the help we will send you, and the quickening of your gatherings, you will no longer need to do that, because you will know. Your energy will thereafter turn toward actively creating the more beautiful world. A tribeswoman asked, How do you know this will work? Are you sure our shaman's powers are great enough to send us on such a journey? The elder replied, I know it will work because he has done it many times before. Many have already been sent to earth to live human lives and to lay the groundwork for the mission you will undertake now. He's been practicing. The only difference now is that many of you will venture there at once. What is new in the time you will live in is that you will gather in critical mass and each awaken the other to your mission. The heat you will generate will kindle the same spark that, spark that lies in every human being. For in truth, each one is from a tribe like ours. The whole galaxy and beyond is converging on Earth. For never before has a planet journeyed so far into separation and made it back again. Those of you who go will be part of a new step in cosmic evolution. A tribesman asked, Is there a danger we will become lost in that world and never wake up from the shamanic trance? Is there a danger that the despair... The cynicism, the pain of separation will be so great that it will extinguish the spark of hope, the spark of our true selves and origin, and that we will be separated from our beloved ones forever? The elder replied, That is impossible. The more deeply you get lost, the more powerful the help we will send you. You might experience it at the time as a collapse of your personal world, the loss of everything important to you, Later you will recognize the gift within it. We will never abandon you. Another man asked, Is it possible that our mission will fail and that this planet, Earth, will perish? The elder replied, I will answer your question with the paradox. It is impossible that your mission will fail, yet its success hangs on your own actions. The fate of the world is in your hands. The key to this paradox lies within you. In the feeling you carry that each of your actions even your personal, secret struggles, has cosmic significance. You will know then, as you know now, that everything you do matters. There were no more questions. The volunteers gathered in a circle, and the shaman went to each one. The last thing each was aware of was the shaman blowing smoke in his or her face. They entered a deep trance and dreamed themselves into the world where we find ourselves today. <laughs>